this evening will continue in the book of Hebrews, the 11th chapter, where I'd like to cover verses 32 to 40, but I have to back up and uh, cover from verse 27 on because we didn't finish last week. I had a more grandiose goal than I could achieve. So I'll read for you beginning at the 27th verse. Hebrews, the 11th chapter, beginning at verse 27. Moses left Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is unseen. By faith he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of the blood, so that he who destroyed the firstborn might not touch them. By faith they passed through the Red Sea, as though they were passing through dry land. And the Egyptians, when they attempted it, were drowned. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. By faith, Rahab the harlot did not perish along with those who were disobedient after she had welcomed the spies in peace. And what more shall I say? For time will fail me if I tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who by faith conquered kingdoms, performed acts of righteousness, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, from weakness were made strong, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection, and others were tortured, not accepting their release, in order that they might obtain a better resurrection and others experienced mockings and scourging, yes, also chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were tempted, they were put to death with the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated, wandering in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground, men of whom the world was not worthy. And all these having gained approval, through their faith, did not receive what was promised, because God had provided something better for us, so that apart from us, they should not attain perfection. That's part the reading of God's Word. Now, we have summarized the uh, 11th chapter of Hebrews, the Hall of Fame of the Faithful, by uh, various periods of the Old Testament. <laughs> The first period that is covered by the author is the antediluvian period. That is to say, the period before the flood and leading up to the flood. And we have examples here of Abel, Enoch, and Noah, men of faith. And then we have the grand example of Abraham, the father of the faithful, and the period of the patriarchs. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Joseph are mentioned. And then the author looks specifically at the example of Moses and the period of the Exodus. That's where we'll begin our lesson tonight in verse 27. The author will go on then to deal with Joshua and the period of the conquest of the land. 
And it's at this point that the author says, you know, if I keep going, this is not going to end. Uh, these interesting words about, you know, time will fail me to tell you of all the examples of faith that I can give you. But then very quickly, he covers the period of the judges, the kings, and the prophets. So that though he does not keep the same intensity and specificity as in the early part of his discussion, we have from the very opening of the Old Testament to the closing of the Old Testament a survey then of the men of faith and the things that have been accomplished and endured through faith. In verse 27, we pick up the story of Moses and the Israelites where we are told that it was by faith that Moses left Egypt. Now, real quickly, you should be aware of the fact that commentators argue with each other over what leaving of Egypt is being referred to here. Because Moses left Egypt twice, as you know. He left Egypt the first time when he was about 40 years old because um, the Pharaoh, he thought, was after him since he had killed an Egyptian. And then later, he left Egypt at the time of the Exodus, taking the Israelites out with him. And so, which a leaving of Egypt... Um, is he referring to here? Is the author referring to? This is one of those opportunities I have to disagree with the uh, major commentary that I follow in preparing these lessons. Uh, that commentator, Philip Edson Hughes, argues that this is Moses' first leaving of Egypt. I'm not convinced. I believe that the context would suggest that this was an act of faith on Moses' part not when he fled the wrath of Pharaoh for killing the Egyptians, but rather the act of faith of leading the Israelites out of the Exodus. When Moses left the first time, it was precisely because of the anger of the king that he left. In Exodus 2, verses 14 and 15, we read that to be the case. However, in Hebrews, verse 27, Hebrews 11, 27, we read, By faith he left Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king. And consequently, I'm convinced that this is Moses leading the children of Israel out at the time of the Exodus. And how did Moses do this? He endured as seeing him who is unseen. I love that paradoxical expression. You know, the sad thing is we run across it often enough in the Bible where we're so familiar with it that it, it fails to have the punch that it's supposed to. Seeing him who is unseen. That's a paradoxical description of God. Um, and yet the Bible does this often. In Romans 1.20, for instance, take another illustration. Romans 1.20. We read, um, For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes have been clearly seen. Paul says that people see what is unseeable. They see the invisible. Is that a contradiction? Well, no, it's a purposeful, a paradoxical expression to stress something. And I could give you an entire lesson or two, if, if, if uh, time allowed. Sounds like you're healthy with you, huh? If I went on and on here, I could tell you a little bit about the, the attributes of God, in particular, the invisibility of God. So I'll try to be brief for you budding theologians. The invisibility of God is not an essential attribute of God. That will perhaps sound shocking. 
The invisibility of God is not an essential attribute. It is not essential that God be invisible. Now what's the difference between an essential attribute and an attribute that is uh, some other character? An attribute that is essential is one which must be there or else the character of that which we're talking about is changed. Okay, it's essential to mermaids that they have fish tails. Okay? You have a mermaid that has regular legs, you don't have a mermaid anymore. Okay, so that's an essential attribute of mermaid. Now is invisibility essential to God? No, it's not. Because God does show himself. God wrestles with people, appears on a burning bush, sends his own son, who says, anyone who's seen me has seen the Father. In fact, God has fleshed himself out, in a sense, on the creaturely level, in every human being, because we are made of what? The image, the visibility, the visible representation of God. So God does show himself repeatedly in history, and of course, supremely, in his son Jesus Christ. The invisibility of God, then, is not an essential attribute, it is rather a sovereign attribute of God. And by calling it a sovereign attribute, I mean that God decides when, where, and how he shall appear. God has chosen, for the most part in this period of human history, not to show himself physically at all. But it is a sovereign choice, not an essential matter to God. He chooses when he will appear, where he will appear, to whom he will appear, and how he will appear. The day is coming where we'll have the Pacific vision, that beautiful vision above all else, when, like Adam in the garden, we walk with God again. But in this age, we walk not by sight, we rather walk by the hearing God's word and by faith. Anyway, Moses endured as seeing him who is unseen. Great acts of faith are possible only to keep our eyes trained on the right object. And so Moses looked not at the king of Egypt, but he looked to the king of kings. It was the ideal world. And here I don't mean that in the Platonic sense, just the world of forms or uh, essences or concepts or anything like that. But the ideal world, meaning the spiritual, the supernatural world, where all ethical ideals and spiritual truths are, are embodied. We look to the ideal world to get strength to get through this present world. Uh, you can be very sure if you um, engage in Christian service, for instance, in this day, that you're going to run into uh, obstacles and persecution and uh, things that are going to really discourage you unless you keep your eyes trained on the ideal world. The world which is not only true and righteous at present, but the world which is yet to come. Now we read in verse 28 that on the eve of the departure from Egypt, Moses, by faith, and the Israelites with him, of course, kept the Passover. The Passover is full of typological significance, looking ahead as it does to the work of Jesus Christ. In 1 Corinthians 5, 7, Jesus is called our Passover, or as it's used there, it's probably the meaning our Passover lamb. 
Remember the story of the Passover. Moses and the Israelites by faith had to do something that many of us are not inclined to do in terms of household decoration. And they had to smear blood on the doorpost of their house. Now, this is not something that happened week by week. You know, the angel of death didn't come through the camp so often. They said, oh, yeah, the angel of death might time to protect us. So, no, they were just told, do it. And by faith, they did. Of course, the angel of death moved through Egypt and took the firstborn of all the Egyptians that passed over, passed over, passed over the houses of the Israelites. Following the Passover, the Israelites had their faith immediately tested, however, because the apparently insuperable obstacle of the Red Sea stood before them as Pharaoh pursued in his wrath. I would invite you, um, we can't do it as I had planned uh, corporately tonight, but I would invite you individually at home to read Exodus 14, verses 10 and following, and look at um, the circumstance and ask how you perhaps would have responded, what attitude you would have had. As the Israelites, a slave nation, leave Egypt, kind of a dangerous thing in the first place, and as they get out into the wilderness, get ready to march into the wilderness, here they have the Red Sea in front of them, which they can't cross. And as they look behind them, they see coming out of Egypt, Pharaoh and his chariot, ready to slaughter them. I think it'd be easy to assume that Moses had led them out there to be ambushed, right? And God opened the Red Sea, and as the author says, they walk through and go on dry ground. And just to make very sure that you understand that this was a mighty supernatural act of God performed by faith, the author reminds us that when the Egyptians tried to follow through, they were overwhelmed by the flood. But that kind of makes a mockery of all the naturalistic attempts to explain the uh, exodus. You know, the, uh, the one I really love is that you know these great winds came up, you know, for a couple of nights before they went. A couple of nights, they were caught up by them. Anyway, the winds blew all night long, and, and the Red Sea was was reduced, you know, down to just inches of water. But then one has to wonder how the Egyptians drowned in inches of water. By faith they passed through the Red Sea as though they were passing through dry land, and the Egyptians, when they attempted it, were drowned. We should remember that um, this illustration of the Red Sea points to a deeper spiritual truth than just the miraculous intervention of God, which is important enough, of course. But we should remember that the way of life for the believer is a way of death for the unbeliever. The Bible teaches this, though. The gospel is the savor of life unto life and death unto death. The gospel is not some kind of magic formula. It's automatically touches someone's life and they get better. No, the gospel touches lives of people, and I guess it's only Calvinists who can really say this and understand it. The gospel touches the lives of some people and destroys them. We must remember that about baptism and, of course, all the sacraments, too. The sacraments are for those who participate in faith, great blessings, and a way of life, nurture, 
and deepening of our faith in God. But the sacraments are also a sign of person. And so the water of baptism becomes not only you must need the cleansing power of God in the life of the faithful, but the waters of baptism also represent the drowning curse of God for the unbelievers. Well, we have to move ahead. I'd love to dwell on some of these things. We come now to the time of conquest. Joshua and the conquest, verses 30 and 32, 30, 31 and 32. By faith the walls of Jericho fell down after they'd been encircled for seven days. After the crossing of the Red Sea, in Old Testament history, we come to a 40-year period which demonstrates a lack of faith. You notice that? As you're going through Hebrews 11, the author's catching these major points to get you, you know, past the Red Sea, and the next thing he talks about is Jericho. What happened to that in-between period? Well, he's already touched on it in Hebrews 3 and 4, where he uses it as an outstanding illustration of a period lacking faith in the Old Testament. So that's why there are no illustrations from the wilderness wanderers for faith. We get rather to Jericho and the conquest. After the crossing of the Jordan River into the land, the faith of the Israelites would be tested immediately again. They come to the city of Jericho, and Jericho was famous in the ancient world for being allegedly uh, an impregnable fortress. It was a walled city. It had very thick walls, very high walls, and the Israelites, remember, didn't even have chariots. I mean, they were an infantry, and not a well-equipped one at that. How on earth were they going to be able to get past Jericho? And so God gave them instructions, and they were not the kind of instructions that you'd expect, say, from a football coach who wants to get you out of trouble, you know, when you're deep into the game and running out of time, and you need some points on the board. I mean, you expect him to say something that makes sense. Well, yeah, we do this, 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 and this, and finally we win the game. God, when he gives the coaches instructions to Israelites, tells them to do something that seems very silly. March around the city in a particular configuration. And when you march, be very quiet. No one talks. You march around the city seven days. And on the seventh day, march around the city seven times. And then blow the ram's horn. You have to remember, when we look at those things from this perspective, that they're finished, and we know the way the story comes out, and that doesn't, you know, it doesn't look like such a big deal. Put yourself on this side of the story. Imagine you're in the third or fourth day of this silent marching around Jericho without any weapons that are going to help you. What are we doing? Have the priests gone mad? What's Moses telling us? And on the seventh day, as they blew the ram's horns, what happened? These walls of Jericho, which everyone knew by human scientific standards would not fall, fell. The Israelites ran in and conquered the city. They did that by faith. Just remember, God accomplishes things which worldly terms can't account for. If you don't believe that, you'll probably get stuck not accomplishing much for the kingdom in your own life. Now, Joshua was a man of faith. He was obedient to his call. Joshua 1.9 is um, worth repeating here. Turn in your Bible to the first chapter of Joshua, the ninth verse. 
God says, Have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous. Do not tremble or be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Joshua believed God that his plan would work, and as a courageous man of faith, he obeyed. Now in connection with the story of Jericho's fall, we're reminded of the faith of Rahab in verse 31. By faith, Rahab the harlot did not perish along with those who were disobedient after she had welcomed the spies in peace. We are reminded that before her identifying herself with the people of God, she was not only a Gentile, but a harlot. Why does the author mention that? Why does he emphasize that? And we have a tendency to kind of, we would maybe put that under the rug and say, you really have to be part of Rahab. You have to be a member of this dark path. Author of Hebrews does so, I think, to accentuate the grace of God. Because he's been giving examples of faith to be among God's people. And here he comes to a Gentile and a harlot at that and a woman. All the things which the Jews would expect not to commend anyone. There's a Gentile woman who's in a, uh, a, a vocation of ill repute. It's interesting, if you look at Matthew, um, the first chapter, Rahab eventually becomes the great-great-grandmother of David in the Messianic genealogy. Not know that? And she gets mentioned where any number of other wonderful women in the Old Testament are omitted. Rahab is the one that's remembered in the line of the Messiah. Matthew 21, verses 31 and 32, Jesus says, having finished the story of the two sons, the one who said he would obey his father and didn't, and the other said he wouldn't, but God did so. Jesus says, which of the two did the will of the father? They said the latter. Jesus said to them, truly I say to you, that the tax gatherers and harlots will go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax gatherers and harlots did believe him. And you seeing this did not even feel remorse afterwards, so it's a belief. That's a very powerful message of Jesus. It's listening to every once in a while. Because I don't know how many uh, prostitutes or harlots or women of ill repute you've known very well, but you know, we don't tend to have a high opinion of them. They're not impressive people. Because the harlots were going to the kingdom of God before they to refuse to recognize this thing from it was by faith that this harlot Rahab was enabled not to perish with those who were disobedient. It's interesting that the enemies of God's people are described as the disobedient. Apparently they were antecedently obligated to obey God, and they failed to do so, and so are described as disobedient. The reason I'm emphasizing that is because a lot of people are... Um, trying to retreat from the thesis that you find in uh, Reconstruction circles about the obligation of all mankind to the law of God, which is a natural obligation revealed in creation and uh, conscience and so forth. And uh, 
one author has recently declared that uh, the Gentiles are never held accountable for obedience. Preposterous, so here we have a description of these uh, Gentile unbelievers as being disobedient. Obviously, they were doing something wrong. Rahab was friendly toward the spies, Hebrew says. She welcomed them in peace. And if you read Joshua, the second chapter, which we'll omit to do right now, but if you go home and read it, Joshua 2, she indicated her faith that God would give them the land. It's really amazing. You know, Rahab hasn't had a, a, a lot of, uh, you know, biblical instruction and commentaries to read and messengers helping her out. But she's got this message down when the spies show up. She goes, she knows that Joshua, excuse me, that Jehovah's going to give Joshua the land. You've got this great God. You can do this. I know he is. And so God spares the life of Rahab. You remember the story? How did that? Rahab had a home that was in the wall of Jericho. She had a window that looked outside the city. And she was to show a scarlet cord in the window of her particular abode there in the wall of Jericho. So the Israelites would know that when the walls came crashing down, those people who lived in that house would be spared. How many legitimate lessons can we read out of the story of Rahab? Again, time gave it to me. I would have to go into a long lesson on hermeneutics because of all the stories in the Old Testament that have been abused for their typological um, uh, and allegorical significance, the story of Rahab got a right up there. Rahab's scarlet cord. Obviously, looking forward to what? The blood of Christ, right? Hence the scarlet color. That may sound like a bad allegory to you, a lot better than some of the ones I've heard some of my professors, though, in terms of the way they treat the Old Testament. But what do you make of that? How about, is Rahab a type of the church? That is looking forward to the Gentiles saved from their idolatry? Is the overthrow of Jericho a foreshadowing of the gospel passing down strongholds? 2 Corinthians 10, everything lifted, stronghold lifted up against God. Are the trumpets that were blown on the seventh day foreshadowing the proclamation of the gospel, the heralding of God's word, which can't... Well, we can go on and on and on. What's the answer to the question that I raised? Be careful, be cautious. Let the Word of God interpret itself, and don't be anxious to read between the lines. We come to verse 32 now, in the period of the judges, kings, and prophets, after the period of conquest. To continue in the fashion in which the author has been proceeding would involve him in a too-lengthy treatise. He recognizes that. That's one of the things I enjoy about reading this because it's pretty clear that in the midst of writing, the author says, whoa, I can't keep going like this. He's going to defeat my purpose. I'm going to end up having this long book just on the hallmark of faith when that isn't my whole point. And so we see that um, although the Holy Spirit inspires the writing of God's Word, he uses the personality and circumstances and words and the approach of the people that are the authors of Scripture. And this author 
very much like that. Constant. It started on big projects and goes, this is not going to get done. I'm going to have to tear it down, tear it down. It's time to get done. That's why I like the fact that we can feel a little better. To continue in this fashion would have meant that the author would have a treatise far too long, and he feels that he sufficiently illustrated the point that he wanted to make. What is the point? It's found in verse 1. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. He's already shown that. So he says in verse 32, And what more shall I say? Do I have to say any more? Of course I don't. This is enough. And besides, time will fail me. If I tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, and Samuel, and the prophets, who, by faith, and then he gives a long list anyway, because he can't help but point us to all these marvelous things that people did and what they endured in the Old Testament. And though he's not going to tell the whole story and play it out, he's going to at least mention in passing, boom, 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 these general things that we should remember take place by faith. So he resorts to closing out this section with a general summary of active faith seen in mighty saints, verse 32, seen in triumphant accomplishments, verses 33 to 35a, and seen in cruel persecutions, verses 37b and 38. By the way, that breakdown is significant. Because the author now starts looking at people we might call heroes. We have the judge Samson, the strong man, David, the king, and so forth. And he talks about how they conquered kingdoms and established justice and escaped the edge of the sword and blah, 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 blah. And we might have a tendency to really get into this movement and say, yeah, by faith we start doing things that really make us victorious. But he influenced by saying people who endured cruel persecution, being sawn half, wandering over the earth. And he, what he wants you to get from that, that the life of faith is just as much illustrated in enduring persecution as it is in winning mighty battles in earthly terms. That's a tough one for any human being to accept and to live out. But I think it's especially tough for macho Americans. You know, we think faith and vindication is to be identified with victory now. But the book of Hebrews ends not on this grand, glorious message of the guy who wins the game and goes out as the hero, but ends on those who are wandering the holes of the earth because they have no place to stay. So realize and appreciate that the examples could go on and on. We could go to the Old Testament, and I think we should go to the Old Testament and read it for more examples of how men lived in faith toward God. Well, one passing thing in verse 32. And what more shall I say? For time will fail me if I tell of getting into and so forth. It's sometimes been suggested that the author of Hebrews was a woman. And I can just prove that. Because it turns out that the word me in the Greek is qualified by a participle which is in the masculine gender, not in the feminine gender. And so uh, this is a surprise to you. It's amazing. Women's liberation is to and the church loved to suggest maybe Hebrews was written, you know, by a woman. That's, and always, when we don't know something, is where you're going to insert all your best evidence for your controversial thesis, you know. But anyway, uh, the author of Hebrews was a man. We know that from the grammar of this verse. Okay, now he comes to certain names that he's going to mention, and they're only a random sampling. In fact, the sampling is so random that he doesn't even mention them in chronological order. 
How good is your knowledge of the Old Testament? You see what's wrong with this order? Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets? Okay. Hopefully you see two mistakes there. If if he was trying to put him in chronological order, which I maintain he wasn't, Barak precedes Gideon, Jephthah precedes Samson. So let's go in chronological order through these illustrations real quickly. Right. So in each of the couplings, the second member really precedes the first member. You see those in the three couplings. Okay, first Barak. Time will fail me to tell you of. And so, you see, now we're not really sure what we're supposed to pick out from the life of Barak and uh, Gideon and Jephthah and Samson and Samuel and David. Okay? We have to settle for something of an overall uh, effect of their life and testimony in the scriptures. Barak, of course, we read of in Judges 4 and 5, was the military general summoned by Deborah. <laughs> Don't you think of a woman who were writing this, she would have mentioned Deborah? Barak was summoned by Deborah to lead Israel victoriously against Sisera and his chariots. And the amazing thing there, of course, is that Sisera was armed with chariots and the Israelites weren't. Still Barak went up to fight against them. And um, he needed to act in faith against such mechanized forces. I think we see the war cry of faith uh, in this particular case in Judges 4, verse 14. I'm keeping an eye on the clock tonight, so I'll finish on time. But these are exciting stories. I'd like to dwell on them a bit. 4.14, And Deborah said to Barak, Arise, for this is the day in which the Lord has given Sisera into your hands. Behold, the Lord has gone out before you. So then Barak went out with his 10,000 and conquered Sisera with his chariot. Death and act of faith. Deborah said, the Lord's going to deliver him. Barak's looking out of the chariot and going, how? God can do it. He promises that he can do it. Gideon, Judges 6, 7, and 8. This was a more remarkable victory even than Barak, because though Barak had to fight a mechanized force the Canaanites with the chariots, Gideon was victorious over the Midianites with only 300 select men. Remember the words of 1 Samuel 14, 6, the Lord knows how to deliver with many and to deliver with few. <coughs> not only did God cut down the numbers of Israel to 300, he didn't even particularly pick the best one. And yet, because of God's sovereign disposition of everything that happens in history, he could confuse the Midianites and put them to flight, and 300 Israelites could kill a thousand. And then he comes to the example of Jephthah, Judges 11 and 12, who, like Barak and Gideon, delivered the Israelites from foreign enemies, the Amorites and the Ammonites, in the case of Jephthah. But I want to take just a couple of minutes here, maybe a little longer than that, to talk about Jephthah in light of last week's sermon. 
because I had some people uh, wondering, since I was preaching we should keep our vows, whether Jeff is a good illustration of that or not. Remember the story where Jephthah said that if God would uh, deliver Israel through him, then when Jephthah returned from battle, he would offer up and sacrifice to God the first thing that came forth from his house. Well, it so happened that the first thing that came forth from his house was his daughter. And so Jephthah is in great pain and agony and remorse over this, but he does follow through with his vow. And now the question is, did he actually sacrifice his daughter? And is he a great man of faith if he did that? I once had a uh, Christian writer employ me to do some research on this because he and another Christian writer were arguing over whether Jephthah should have kept his vow or not, both of them assuming that Jephthah had sacrificed his daughter. And the suggestion was made that see, it's a soft interpretation to think that Jephthah didn't really sacrifice his daughter. Well, of course, my obligation as a student of God's Word is not to worry about whether my interpretation is subjectively taken as soft or as hard, rather it's accurate. And I believe that uh, Jephthah did not offer his daughter and that Jephthah did not promise to offer his daughter and sacrifice. And I'd like to give you a quick argument for that. You may want to remember this when others raise questions about this incident with you. The Bible teaches us that Jephthah was a godly man. We read of that in Judges 11, verses 11 and 29, and of course he's already in Hebrews 11 held out as an example of a man of faith. We know that he was a godly man who was knowledgeable about God's word. We see that as he deals with the king of the Amorites in Judges 11, 15 to 27, and especially as he discusses his vow in verses 34 and 35. Being a godly man who knew God's word, he certainly knew that human sacrifice is contrary to God's command. Secondly, be aware that when Jephthah made his vow, he did not have his daughter in mind, which is evident by the fact that he later was in great remorse. Verse 35 of Judges 11 shows us that. So the vow was not made, obviously, with his daughter in mind. Thirdly, Although it distressed him, he kept the vow as a man of faith. Verse 39 of Judges 11 tells us so. And now fourthly, it's interesting that he allowed his daughter two months of mourning before he kept the vow, but she mourned not her impending death, but her virginity. Verse 5, I think it's significant that the scriptures comment that after the fulfilling of the vow, his daughter, we are told, knew not a man. Verse 39. And in Judges 11.40 we read that the action of Jephthah merited yearly commemoration in Israel. Now what would account for all of that? I'll tell you what would account for it. If Jephthah promised to consecrate the first thing that came from his house to the service of the Lord, and his daughter was turned over to be an attendant at the temple, for instance, someone who's in the service of God and therefore would not marry, then it would make sense that she was one consecrated, even though he didn't expect she would be the one who came out of the house, two, that she bewails her virginity, and thirdly, that Israel commemorates this act of faith and obedience 
year by year. I don't think commemoration of human sacrifice would have been sort of an Israel would have remembered happily. Now, what was the vow? According to Judges 11.31, it was to offer up whatever came out of his doors to meet him. To meet him. That's not the sort of thing you'd say of animals. They don't come out of the house to meet you, unless you think of your dog who runs out to see you when you come home and will have to work. But um, Jephthah expected someone to come forth from his house, apparently not his daughter. And this was a promise of consecration to the Lord's service. Consecration so total that it could be spoken of like a burnt offering. The Hebrew word is olah, that which goes up. You know this Hebrew from El Al, right? The airline, that which goes up, the Olaf, is that which is consumed in a burnt offering. It goes up. Entirely consumed. In Numbers 8, 11, excuse me, chapter 16, it's used of the priests who are consecrated to God. They are Olaf. They are consumed in God's service as well. And so I think the only interpretation that satisfies all the conditions that we've laid down is that Jephthah did not sacrifice his daughter, killed her, but rather consecrated his daughter to the service of the Lord, perhaps at the uh, at the temple itself. Remember godly Anna, Luke 2, maybe in a position like that. And remember as well, men of faith do not make, much less keep, unlawful vows. If Jephthah was a man of faith, he never would have promised a human sacrifice, and if he did say words which would have gotten him into trouble, committing him to it, he never would have kept such a vow because as our confession teaches us, we are not to keep vows that bring us into violation of God's word. So, that wasn't two minutes, but it was a rather quick discussion in Jeff's. I should give you a chance to ask any questions so that Jeff is vowed to life. Robert. In the Judges 1131, where it says that I will offer it up to a good offering, Okay, I will offer it up. Then when you have as a burnt offering, the as a burnt offering is not necessary in the Hebrew. I will offer it up, Olah means I will offer it to be consumed, totally taken up. Now since that is a common expression for a burnt offering, because the burnt offering was consumed on the altar, totally taken up and smoked before God, then it's not an unnatural association to put in as a burnt offering, but Ola does not require that. Ola can mean simply total consumption, total taking up of something. I believe it's a misleading translation, yes. It, it, it's one which is, is understandable when you forget other factors. But in light of these factors, I think it's very misleading. Well, it is in the view of the different ways. Yeah. Yeah, I would say that statistically it's more often for an offense. Well, it's at least used, it doesn't have to be used that way. In Numbers 10, we find another, excuse me, Numbers 8, verses 10 to 16, we find another use of it. And the situation, all things considered, I think demands that we now see this as a human sacrifice. <laughs> well, that in itself, of course, ought not, ought not to discourage you about accepting this, which should encourage you. Then, wait a minute. I mean, 
could he be a man of faith and all these good things better than you would have told me about it? But then how are you waiting to look at Jesus? Well, um, basically, <coughs> last week I preached that um, godly people, wise people, keep their promises. They don't make reckless promises, and when they make their promises, they keep them. Jephthah made a promise, and he's an example of a man who kept his promise. However, we shouldn't see that as an example of someone who kept an unlawful vow to offer human sacrifice. Well, are we to consider it a reckless sacrifice? I mean, a reckless sacrifice? <coughs> um, I guess it depends on the perspective of your evaluation. From Jephthah's standpoint, yes, it was a reckless promise. Because he, he regretted it. But he does show his... Uh, that he walked with Jehovah because he swore to his own hurt and changed not. Now this expression, which unfortunately the New American Standard 
translates performed acts of righteousness. <laughs> In the first place, righteousness would not be the preferred word. It should be justice, and not performed, but rather established. To put it simply, they by faith enforce justice. They establish just governmental regimes. You think of Samuel, look at 1 Samuel 12, and the testimony given to him that he didn't take anything from anybody who was a man beyond bribery, a just ruler in Israel. David, who established justice in Israel, 2 Samuel 8, 15, and Solomon, who even the Queen of Sheba recognizes a man who reigned in justice, 1 Kings 10, 9. I was thinking as I was preparing this lesson, if I ever had the opportunity to preach, before a president of our, uh, of our nation, I'm going to preach on this passage about how it's necessary in faith to rule because it's by faith that men establish justice. It doesn't come through great campaign speeches or rhetoric or good intention. It comes by acting in faith toward God. Because if a man were to do what is necessary today to establish justice, he could only do it by trusting God. He couldn't trust it the popularity polls and the mass media city. It's by faith the people enforce justice. And they received what was promised. Numerous examples could be um, brought out here from the time of the conquest, Joshua 21:43. God says, there's not a single thing that I promised that I didn't deliver to you. And that might be favored because uh, the promise to Joshua in Joshua in the 5 is repeated in Hebrews 13, verse 5. Um, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. And so it's possible that that's the promise that is being alluded to back here in verse, excuse me, chapter 11. But it's also possible that the author is moving ahead in his um, going through Old Testament history and thinking maybe of Elijah. Now there's this fantastic uh, chapter 17 and 18 in 1 Kings where repeatedly God gives a promise to Elijah the things that he will accomplish through him. Things that just seem impossible, and they all fall into place by the word of the Lord, it says. And so it may be that that is the particular periphery of the Old Testament the author is thinking of. They stopped the mouths of lions. I hope no one missed this one. Daniel, obviously, Daniel 6. God shut the lions' mouths and protected his prophets. They quenched raging fire. We move ahead in Daniel now to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who uh, were thrown into the fiery furnace and yet were, um, were saved by God. Well, they are a great illustration. You could let the chips fall where they may. And the consequences are left to God. It's only up to us to obey them. I wish I had that kind of faith. They escaped the edge of the sword. David often escaped the edge of the sword when he fled from Saul. Elijah escaped from Jezebel. Elisha escaped from the king of Syria. Hard to know if the author means any one of those or all of them together. They were made strong through weakness. And of course, every act of faith is an act of being made strong through weakness because faith recognizes our personal weakness and relies for guidance and strength upon divine grace. But you think of Samson's last feet made strong through weakness. Or David against Goliath, the giant. 
Orestra before the mighty threatening Persian king, made strong through weakness. I can't help but uh, allude to Paul's words in 2 Corinthians 12, 8-10, where Paul says, When I am weak, then am I strong? If God has taught me to pay, my strength is sufficient for me. My strength is protected in weakness. Then he came mighty in war. Read Psalm 18. Here's your homework sign for tonight. How often David says, God made me mighty for battle. They put foreign armies to flight. That maybe looks back to the judges and the kings, but perhaps looks ahead to the Maccabean period. Except that the next item, women received back their dead by resurrection, I think certainly refers to the periods of Elijah and Elisha. So put foreign armies to flight uh, probably is still dealing with the judges and the kings. And then this reference to women received back their dead by resurrection. Elijah raised the son of the widow of Zarephath, 1 Kings 17. Elisha raised the son of the Shunammite woman. And you decide what to make of this. You know, in the New Testament, it's also women who received back their dead by resurrection. The, um, the widow of Nain in Luke 7, Mary and Martha in John 11, and the widows of Joppa received back Dorcas from the dead in Acts 9. I don't know the Women received back their dead by resurrection. Tell me. Um, do you draw the distinction between resurrection and raising? Raising in what sense? Raising from the dead. Like a raising from the dead is not actually a resurrection. You don't get to the resurrection until um, the last day of the resurrection. I would think that at best that's a uh, distinction that may be convenient and helpful, but it's imposed on the text. The word here would not tell you one way or another, I don't think. Do you think it does? Well, I don't know. I just, you know, have often heard it interpreted as women receiving their, uh, you know, dead resurrection as a figurative speech that people are in the clutches of death, but then see some delivered, you know, they're delivered um, in the mind of Abraham. You know, Isaac was dead, so God delivered him. No, no, I think these people were actually dead. Well, I, I would say yes, in, in, in a physical sense, but the, the point is, is that, you know, somehow resurrection is, you know, significant in Scripture, something that we go through when we're changed. Christ was the first one, and, and the argument often is Christ was the first one to resurrect everybody before him, which is raised from the dead or resuscitated or something like that. It's true that everyone that was raised from the dead prior to Christ's resurrection died again. And so they were not glorified at the time of the resurrection. That's true. Women received back their dead by resurrection. But now the author turns corner and he says, Faith is evident not just in mighty achievements, but enduring cruel persecution. Verses 35 to 38. Faith is demonstrated in a willingness to endure torture and mistreatment for the sake of pursuing righteousness. So we get a catalog of the sufferings of God's faithful witnesses. They were tortured, refusing release in order to obtain a better resurrection. Here the word resurrection is used of escaping death, interestingly. You would be dead, but if you did what your tormentors wanted, they wouldn't kill you. That's a kind of resurrection. But the author says they look for a better resurrection, a return to life that was better than a reprieve from death. Think about that. 
They were going to return to life even though not received from death. Inconceivable to those who don't have faith. How could they do that? Often in the history of the church, Christians have had the opportunity to escape martyrdom. Their, their testimony was so indicting to the persecutors, persecutors wanted to let them go. But they wouldn't accept it. God's people have endured mockings and scourgings. Jeremiah was beaten and put in the stocks. They've endured chains and imprisonment. Jeremiah was then thrown in prison and left in an empty cistern to die. They've been stoned. In Matthew 23, 21, Jesus refers to the stoning of God's prophets. Tradition tells us that Zechariah the priest, 2 Chronicles 24, was stoned to death. And tradition also says Jeremiah was stoned to death by the Jews in Egypt. The author says God's people were sawn in two. The Talmud and the patristic writers, tradition tells us that Isaiah was sawn in two in manner of his torture and death. Then the author says they were killed with the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins. They were destitute, afflicted, ill-treated wandering over deserts, mountains, and dens and caves. And we get so general here that no specific instances are necessary or even intended, I believe. But if this is the lot of God's people, why is he in on that? Because he's writing to people who are afraid that they're going to be persecuted for being Christians. They're being tempted to go back into Judaism, to cover up, and not have to undergo what was now the outbreak of the Neronian persecution in the ancient world. And so you just remember that the men of faith of old, they were ill-treated and destitute and treated terribly, tortured to death. They wandered around and lost their possessions in said work. And you need to be willing to do the same. These examples show the fierce hatred of the world and its hostility to the truth and to righteousness. And they should have forget that. You know, we in the Christian church have the tendency, and sometimes we expect in the Christian church to be better than they actually get, but don't you ever forget that the life of faith is not appreciated by the world. You say it's just a private, quiet matter, I'll obey God and trust Him and go about my life. The world will not leave you alone. And all they will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. The world hates what we stand for. The world hates our quiet obedience. The world hates the truth and it hates righteousness. And so it ruthlessly hunts down and attacks those who would faithfully follow God. God's people have rejected the world and its ways, and the world would eject God's people. Remember the words of the Beatitude in Matthew 5, Blessed are you when men shall persecute you and revile you and say all manner of evil against you for my own sake. God's people have the view fixed upon a better world and more blessed promises than can be offered by this world. And for that reason, this world hates them. So I want you to notice these words and with them all close. They're really glorious. Parenthetical. And yet just so powerful. Of whom the world was not worthy. The author looks at this wicked world steeped in sin and rebellion against God. And all of it ruthless, all of its shame. Because you know, there are people who have lived here in this world who's not 